Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851, or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to the show. This is a call-in show for you to call about anything you're interested in regarding your plants, uh, we look forward to talking to you. Let me give you a phone number so you can give us a call. Our number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. We are finally getting a little cooler again, but, you know, we're still waiting for the real winter day to arrive. Uh, we've had a, a couple of an attempts at freeze. They were enough to kill our warm season uh, annuals and perennials back, but not a real significant hard freeze in most parts of the area. Uh, so as it really gets colder, we're going to see a lot more of that. And people often ask about things like, well, when, when do I cut things back? Do I leave it over winter or do I cut it back now? Uh, and, and then, um, you know, just not have anything there. And there's not really a, a completely right or wrong answer to that. Uh, the benefits of cutting it back now is the aesthetics the concern of cutting it back now is removing the top growth on some plants uh, exposes the base or crown of that plant to a little more injury. So if you had a freeze coming up in the next weeks that, uh, you know, if it had the top growth kind of protecting it, almost like a mulch over the top or protection from the heat loss uh, from the base of the so and the soil, uh, maybe that top growth would make the difference. It's not night and day, but it, it is helpful. Uh, so if you don't mind the aesthetics, you could just go ahead and leave it. The advantage of leaving it, that therefore, is strictly that it might help uh, in a marginal situation with the base. A lot of our perennials are dependably hardy, and, and so we don't have to worry about that. But we have a few things that, uh, for example, the Mexican heather. I actually have some of these uh, lining uh, a concrete uh, walk. And... The Mexican heather is already frozen back. It's not a cold, hardy plant on the top. With a really good, hard cold, you can you can kill them. Uh, last year, I expected them to be dead, but a snow cover was that mulch that held in the warmth of the soil and kept it from dropping to a point where they would be killed. But that might be an example of one that you would leave. In general, I think just the unsightliness of the top uh, with 
probably 80% of the people, 80% of the situations, I would just say, go ahead and cut it back. Uh, and then after you cut it back, mulch it. And you can put a little mulch over the base of the plant. We call that the crown, but it's where the perennials emerge from the ground at the base. And by putting a mulch over that, you accomplished what snow did for us last year uh, when we had the severe cold. And that way the, the area looks a little bit better. Uh, so I think that's a good idea. If you have an ornamental grass, uh, th those also can be cut back. Uh, they don't have to be. And think about the prairies. Nature does not cut back ornamental grasses on the or grass clumps on the prairie. But uh, in our yards, we can for a better, more attractive look. And here, here's why. Those ornamental grass shoots and leaves that came up, um, they are going to die and be dead tawny colored material in the plant when all the new green growth comes. So you end up with a mix of some old dead stuff and some new stuff and it's just not as attractive. You can cut them back to near the ground and they will come out fresh and you'll have a fresh green much more attractive clump if you want to do that. So how close to the ground? Well practically speaking for some things like miscanthus which is maiden grass they make a very large plant a large clump uh, we might go down about eight or ten inches high cut them off there i mean you don't have to cut them off at the ground in fact i wouldn't uh, and for some others they may be cut back a little bit further there's so many grasses that it's kind of hard to overgeneralize. but uh, i think that uh, cutting them back is, is a good idea now you're not going to mulch over the base of that plant the part you leave is in and of itself a little bit of protection uh, just all those all that clump of grass sticking up a few a few inches above the ground so that would be probably what i would suggest on most of the plants that you have out there uh, if you have things like canna oh my gosh they look horrible you know all those giant dead large plant parts above ground uh, and so go ahead and cut them back and canna's pretty hardy you're not going to worry about that uh, but anything that you're a little concerned about, just go ahead and put a little mulch on it, and I think you'll be okay. Uh, this is the time of year when we continue planting cool-season vegetables and cool-season flowers. Uh, most of the time we get those in in late fall uh, or because it gives them time to establish a large-sized plant for better productivity. Uh, and I say late fall. some A lot of the cool-season vegetables we're planting as far back as September, but... Um, by planting them now, they're going to be a little slow to get moving, but they will move, and eventually with some warm days, uh, they'll grow a little more. In fact, you know, we're basking in 70-degree temperatures, uh, low 70s, but uh, this week, uh, for winter, that's not bad, right? And so uh, you'll find that even your cool-season garden does pretty good through the winter time. You just need to be ready when we get a good cold hard freeze uh, to protect those plants because when you protect them that gets you through until the next day and it a typical freeze this time of year and it, there's exceptions but typically you see the the cold drop down below freezing that night and by not too far into the morning it's already above freezing maybe just a, an hour or two below freezing in some cases and so you don't have to leave protection covering over the plants for a long period of time. In fact, you want them to be able to gather sunlight. Uh, and along those lines, you want the soil to gather sunlight. Because when during a day, let's say it's a, a day that's only in the upper 50s or 60s, if the sun is shining, there is some soil warming occurring from those solar rays. 
And so allow that soil to warm a bit. And then when you put the cover back on at the end of the day, uh, as the sun is starting to get low in the sky and set, you're holding the escape of that warmth from your plants up into the atmosphere, and it makes a big difference uh, to do that. That's one reason, you know, we always say mulch, 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 because from a plant growth standpoint, that's good. If you're trying to protect plants from cold, I would pull the mulch back so the soil can absorb some heat. Now, if we go through three days where the sun doesn't come out, you know, drizzly, rainy, whatever, there's no benefit uh, to having that, that soil uncovered. Uh, but, it, you know, anytime the soil gets uncovered, you're going to have some weeds sprout up. So you want to watch for that. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. And by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's go to the email and answer a question that's come in. Uh, I have a picture of a little oak tree, and, it, and the, basically what the, the uh, uh, Mike is saying is that uh, he's found this oak tree in um, Brazos County, uh, down in toward Navasota even. Uh, there's a, a similar kind of leaves out in Austin. He wants to know what it is. It looks a little like a live oak. What that is, Mike, most likely uh, your picture is a, a Monterey oak, also called Mexican white oak. And he mentions they keep the leaves through the winter. Most of the time, Monterey, uh, it, it's a very slow to lose leaves, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't go completely dormant. Uh, there'll be a few leaves, especially kind of in closer to the trunk of the, of the, of the tree. Uh, but I don't consider it to be an evergreen, although it, it's kind of, it spans the gap between deciduous and evergreen in, in some ways. Uh, Mexican white oak is a, a plant that is native to Mexico. I may reach into southwestern Texas, you know, out south or Big Bend area. I don't know on that for sure, but we, we think of it as a, as a Mexican oak. And uh, it does well up here. It isn't as hardy going north as, as some of our oaks can be, but uh, it is hardy enough for our area here. We saw a little bit of damage when it got really hammered uh, this last February, but that is a unusual and rare occurrence. And, and uh, like I've said before, I don't uh, base my plant choices on something that is that unusual and rare. Uh, but it's it's a good plant. It uh, The leaves on it can be deceptive. Uh, and I, in fact, I, <laughs> I, I kind of hate to try to identify it sometimes because there uh, a couple of things happen. Number one, and this is true of any tree, uh, the leaves, when it's a juvenile seedling, are very different than the leaves when it is a mature adult plant. And uh, trees start off in a juvenile state. They're not able to bloom, to reproduce, produce seed. Uh, and as that tree grows, the, the um, uh, parts of the tree go from juvenile to mature. And that's when, whether it's a pecan tree or an oak tree, it can start to produce pecans or acorns or whatever. Those top-of-the-ground parts that have matured are considered mature wood, but the base always remains juvenile. But what you find is the difference between juvenile and mature leaves on trees can, can vary. Also, the difference in the shade versus in the sun can vary a little bit. Shade leaves will be a lot larger, typically, than a leaf that's out in the sun. And that makes sense. Why not make a bigger solar panel when there's not as much sunlight coming through? 
uh, I've, you'll see mulberry leaves that are very different when it's a little seedling than when it becomes an adult. I think you got a Mexican white oak there. I'm operating with a limited amount of data in, in, the, in a photo, but uh, that's I'm about 85 to 90% sure that's what, what you've got. I like Mexican white oak. I like the fact that it does hold its leaves a little bit longer. Uh, the new growth on it uh, is kind of a, I don't know, coppery pink. Is that a good description. It's uh, it's not red, but it's a sort of a pinkish coppery color, as, as I would describe it. And that's kind of unusual. Being a white oak, it is not as susceptible to oak wilt as some of the red oaks uh, can be uh, or are, uh, but I wouldn't call it resistant. I just, just would say that was, that's a reason I used to recommend it over in the Austin area, because it, it does have a little bit of a benefit on, on that side as well. Very long-lived, but it grows fast. Uh, Mexican white oak is one of the more rapidly growing oaks. Uh, any, any, kind of, um, any kind of oak tree, if you fertilize and water it a little more, you're going to get a little bit faster growth out of it. And we can take things that are relatively slow and make them at least moderate in their growth rate. Uh, but Mexican white oak is a pretty quick one. And everybody wants a tree that grows fast and then stops at a certain size so it doesn't get too big and cover the whole yard and kill all the grass. Uh, and it, it's kind of hard to get plants to agree to th such things. The ones that, but uh, mo most fast-growing trees are also uh, weak-wooded. Uh, and I'm generalizing here. There's exceptions to anything we say like that. But um, most of them are, are generally weak-wooded, and so I usually think of fast-growing as a trash tree. This is one that's a good, decent tree, and I would I would say that it, it is worth considering. I wouldn't I don't know if I'd put it in the top five trees for the Brazos County even, but it certainly is a good tree. Well, let's uh, stop there on that one and go to the phones again. Our number eight four five five six eight nine, and let's talk to Syed. Hello, Syed. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Steve, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm getting ready to trim some of these uh, plumbagos, uh, and they have, they have died during uh, this last couple of weeks of cold weather. And how much do I cut them down uh, from the ground? Uh, a few inches above ground or close to the ground? or You know, how, how do that's a good question, Syed. There, and there's not a magic number. Um, I would I would probably cut them back to about six inches, and if some of that ends up being dead and the sprouts come out below, it, they're going to hide that those little tiny stalks pretty quick. Uh, just kind of judge by the the cold we have. We have a lot of plants that generally die back significantly, and some that die back moderately. The uh, yellow bells, Esperanza, uh, Duranta. Uh, golden showers. Uh, this plumbago is an example of one that could fit into that. And if you wait until spring and only cut back what died back, you end up with an irregular, I don't think is attractive plant. All of these will come back strong from near the base. And I just think you have a, a beautiful plant because you still have that strong, big root system that supported the bigger plant last year. And so when you cut the top back or when freeze cuts the top back, uh, it just comes out with a, with a, a vigor. The same thing, too, with Vinca's with, uh, with uh, lantana, I mean. Lantana, yes, yeah. exactly the same thing. Uh, probably on lantana, you know, I usually, I don't know how to describe this, maybe the width of your hand high, something like that. Uh, what's that, three or four inches high? Okay. Uh, it, it it doesn't matter exactly. You're not going to mess up if you go to two inches or if you go to eight inches. It's going to be fine. Don't okay. don't don't worry about that. 
Okay. And not to fertilize them now and wait until a little, uh, when the cold goes away and this, uh, this yes. warmer weather shows up in about March or so? Yes. Uh, okay. And think of it this way. That plant is not growing right now. And so yeah. there wouldn't be a movement of any significance of nutrients up into the plant anyway. And when yeah. you fertilize, some of our nutrients, potassium to a moderate degree and, and nitrogen to a great degree, they wash away. Uh, they just wash away with rains. And so um, it's not as efficient to use fertilizer now. Some of it will be around in the spring still, but it's not as efficient. Uh, and I would wait and let the plant get growing. You know, people, I think, and I'm saying this, you know, for other folks that are listening, uh, people think of fertilizer uh, in the sense like if I put fertilizer on my plant, it's going to grow. Like stepping on the gas pedal of your car makes it go. Well, yes, fertilizer supports growth. But if a plant is crawling along because the soil is cool or something like that, fertilizer is not going to just make it take off and grow. As as the t and and as that plant is slowly growing, there's a lot of nutrients in your soil. When we fertilize, we are just sort of topping off the situation a little bit. Uh, we're not supplying all the nutrients that plant wants. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, have a great day, and I'll talk to you later. Hey, Sayed, thanks for the call. Thank Let's you. go back now to the phones and talk to Mike. Hey, Mike. Oh, excuse me, John had the wrong oh. name. Good morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about getting my uh, uh, light plant, my light bar going and starting some seeds. miracle Grow makes a, a mix specifically for starting seeds, and it's perlite and sphagnum, peat moss, and a wetting agent. What is a wetting agent? If you've ever let peat moss get dry and tried to put water on it, the water just sits on top of it. Uh, and, and the same is true if you have a kitchen sponge, one of the old type kitchen sponges, uh, and it gets just powder dry, and you put a little drop of water on it, it just sits on the top of it for a while. Uh, but when that sponge is somewhat moist, it pulls the drop in real rapidly, soaks it up. Uh, peat moss is that way. So a wetting agent is something that breaks the surface tension of water so that it's able to move down and into the material better. Is there... Is there a specific uh, material that's a wetting agent for, for, this, for this use? For that use, I don't know. Um, uh, in general, soap is somewhat of a wetting agent. Uh, it, if you put a drop of water on the counter and then you mix some soap in the container just a tiny bit and you put another drop, that second drop is going to be very flat compared to the first one. It'll flatten out because the surface tension is lost. There are wetting agents that are put in for mixing for pesticides, and you can buy those at uh, a full-service type uh, garden supply place. Uh, and But I don't know. I'm sure they're not labeled for seed starting. What I generally do is, and I always, you know, don't check my potting soil or seeding soil until it's the time to plant the things but check it a little early throw some water on it and it'll soak in it's not like it won't soak in it's just going to take a long time and once it gets a little moist then it's very receptive to pulling in water and and the the difference on the and this is going beyond your question because i always think about people that are listening they go yeah i want to start some seed uh 
the the seed starting mixes are more finely ground so they're very fine textured so you put a little bitty seed on them and you want to plant it you know x amount deep you can get it just like that whereas a more chunky big potting soil mix the seeds could fall down at various depths and and uh, you don't get as good of seed to soil contact and that's what we want we want that seed enveloped in moist soil do they make the perlite in different grinds or yes you know if you go to producers co-op and buy a bag of perlite it's there's only one bag of perlite. Yeah, but you, and if you go to the, cut open the bottom of the bag, and you're going to have some fine grinds in there that have settled to the bottom. Uh, it just from the friction of them rubbing together and grinding apart, uh, they do make different textures of it. And the same is true with vermiculite. They make different uh, size particles for the mer- huh. vermiculite as well. Yeah. But if you want to, you can you can get some and you figure out how you want to do it. But just you know, you rub it real good and sort of pulverize it a little bit, and you can get a finer finer grind with even a coarse vermiculite. And the fertilizer, uh, and of course they put some fertilizer, and it. it looks like it's it's like two percent of the of the three uh, ingredients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm which is pretty mild. I mean that's. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's an organic. I mean, it must be an organic. Uh, yes. Yes. And they, and they put that in with their uh, their seed mix. Yes. Uh, let me, I'm going to go back and correct something I said. I used the word vermiculite when I said you can grind it down to finer. Uh, I was thinking about perlite when I was saying that, because uh, that's mm-hmm. what you were asking about. Uh, just anybody who heard that, I'd want to correct it. Uh, yeah, the... You know, I... It's nice to have a mix that's got wetting agents and got nutrients in it and all of that kind of thing. I generally just buy a good seed starting mix. And if I want if I want to fertilize, I can, and you mentioned miracle Grow. you can mix miracle Grow up as dilute as you want. And most seedlings, we don't want to push them too much. We want them to get going and have a little nutrition, but you know, warm growing temperatures, uh, lots of nitrogen, and low light levels all point it toward a spindly, floppy, worthless seedling. So I, I would, I personally would just get whatever your soluble mix fertilizer is going to be, whatever brand or type. I mean, some people use fish mm-hmm. emulsion and seaweed for that, uh, but just whatever it is, and dilute it down to to a very low low rate. Okay, is is, is light important before the the thing breaks the ground, or is it? Or you don't worry about light until after you start to see something. You don't worry, but the minute that little stem, the stalk that holds the leaves, bends up and comes to the ground, it is looking for light. And so I've put seedlings in a little container with plastic over it and set it on top of the refrigerator because that's kind of a warm spot usually. Uh, and uh, forgot them for a day, and I looked up there, and I had little spindly, scrawny, etiolated seedlings that <laughs> you got. You got to catch them quick. There's one one exception to that, and and there are certain seeds that need light to germinate. And uh, two common examples are um, carrots and lettuce. Now you wouldn't be starting carrot transplants. Don't do that. But the lettuce uh, needs the red spectrum, uh, especially of the of the uh, sunlight in order to germinate it, it helps promote that. And so those, that's a situation where 
I would I would provide that. I've never tried starting lettuce in pure darkness, like stick it in a closet. Maybe I'll try that this year. Uh, <laughs> but but I do know that we always say plant your lettuce seeds on top of the ground, and it's for that reason. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your help. Well, I'm trying to get trying to get set up for starting some transplants. Oh man, that's a fun thing. I love love growing transplants. I think I still have a little bit of time because we're up in Robinson County, which is just a little cooler than Francis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, they they say the cobbler's kids go barefoot, and don't tell anybody I said this, but I still haven't started my seedlings for spring. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Well, I, I appreciate it, and thanks a lot. All right. Take care, John. Our phone number is eight four five. Five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine, and by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. We had an email that came in last week. I think I didn't get to it. It was right toward the end of the show. Which, by the way, if you want to email it, it's best if you email me early. It gives me a better chance of getting to it because I don't I don't do these in between shows. It's a different email account uh, than our, ours at the extension office, but. Uh, I think Alexander had asked about a frozen eggplant coming back. He had a, a really nice eggplant, had a good-sized trunk on it at the base, and the, the freeze we had knocked it back. Uh, it, most of the time, those annual, uh, annual in our climate, uh, they're perennial where they're from, but annual in our climate, and that would be tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, those kinds of solanaceous crops, they will will be killed and you don't, even think of saving the plant. We've had mild winters, again, with that basal mulch to protect them, and the top may get burned off by a freeze, but then you get resprouting from the base. The question is, is do you want that? And and if you've got, uh, you know, a buildup of disease issues on the plant, uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be a little more likely to have those problems start earlier with the presence of spores or bacteria or whatever uh, there at the base. Uh, that's kind of a um, a guess on my part, I, I think, just kind of thinking in terms of how diseases work. But I would, uh, I sometimes keep them just for the fun of trying to keep like a jalapeno or something, keep it going and come back. I've even dug up the base right prior to a freeze and potted it up, brought it inside under my lights and just had it keep going. Uh, but in general, it it's probably better to just replace it. But if you want to try... If you want to try, Alexander, go ahead and, and mulch it well. Uh, you can leave the dead on top if you want now. There's no need to take it off. Uh, and there's a chance it may come back. But there's going to have to be some living buds that are essentially above the soil line or right at the soil line uh, for it to be able to resprout. Let's see. We had another question come in by email from Shannon. And there are some insects on uh, the ficus tree, uh, and I'm going to get a good look at those here. I want to. There's there's several kinds of ficus that we have. This is uh, ficus benjamina, which is uh, the the fig or the ficus that you would see. I don't know if you go to a mall and they've got a little little large plant area somewhere in the walk through area, uh, and you got these big trees with you know, oval leaves with points on the end. That That's ficus benjamina. And uh, the the ficus trees are prone to a number of, of pest problems. Mealybugs and scale would be some examples. Uh, I would think you could get spider mites and insects, but specifically 
on your ficus, um, um, Shannon, is scale. Those are scale insects. And it's a type of scale. Uh, some types of scale produce sugary water. And, and when you have the sugary water, it falls on the leaves below and a black sooty mold grows. And you can see that happening on your plant. Uh, that is a pretty large plant and it, it's always a, a tough call as to what to do. Uh, getting rid of scale completely is a challenge. It, it just, I mean, to really eradicate it is a challenge. Uh, you you got a couple of options. Uh, one option is to put a systemic insecticide in the pot. And these are the kind that or the roots take it up and they pump it through the plumbing of the plant. And so insects that are sucking juices out of the plant like scale, they get a drink of the poison and it kills them. And this kind of scale, the, the um, uh, systemic insecticides will work uh, against this particular one that you have on your, on your trees. Uh, some people don't want to use any insecticide, and I understand that. If you, if you feel that way, that's fine. It's your, it's your plant, your business. But when it comes to uh, danger, if you've got something that's just in the soil and it's going through the plumbing, you can even have beneficial insects landing and walking around on that plant, and it's not going to affect them. Now, if they happen to eat a, I don't know, half-dead scale that's got some stuff in it, maybe to some degree you would have problems, but that's that's just a, a stretch. that I wouldn't worry about that. Uh, but for, for the ficus, I would probably, if it were mine and it was a special tree and I really didn't want to lose it, I would start trying the insecticides. They last a long time, and this is the soil type, not spraying the top. Don't even bother trying that. Uh, but put the stuff in the soil. It's going to take a while to work. Uh, you've got a lot of scale on those leaves, and um, if the tree has a good warm place that it can live indoors, I would, I'd pull all the leaves off and get rid of them. Just, that's just getting rid of a lot of scale, and it's going to re-sprout. If it's in a warm, bright area, it's going to be just fine. Uh, but any of those leaves that have it, I would pull back. You could also do pruning to cut it back. Maybe it needs a little bit of shaping, and so pruning would have other reasons to, to, to do it. Uh, but I think that's probably, uh, those are your options on that tree. And one option with, with all houseplants especially is there's no shame in throwing it away and get you, getting you a new one uh, and growing you a new one. Uh, I've done that a number of times myself. and uh, so, uh, But I certainly understand if it's a prize plant. Our phone number, 845-5689. Give us a call at 845-5689. If you're calling from outside the area, it's a 979 area code. And by email, you can reach us at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu garden success one word at tamu dot edu i uh, wanted to go back i think we also have another question here by email uh, from shannon and shannon has some peppers and beans that looked great a few weeks ago now they have brown spots and look uh, terrible and some of you are thinking well of course, we had a we had a pretty significant low freeze up here. Well, this is this is coming from Houston. Channel listens from down in the in the Houston area, and what I see on your plants, um, I think you probably had it. Not this just didn't appear overnight. Uh, but but what I see are are disease spots, and 
they looking at them they could be bacterial or they could be fungal i see things that look a little like either of those so maybe you have both uh, but peppers are, are especially notorious for having the bacterial leaf spots on them and um, you know you can spray with a fungicide but with all those spots have the ability whether they're bacterial or fungal uh, they have bacteria present, and they also have fungal spores present if they're a fungal spot, or they could have those. So l trying to just spray, you have so much what we call inoculum to reinfect that plant that it's probably, to the degree your peppers are affected, not worth it. Uh, again, I might consider doing a um, some leaf removal if you really want to try to keep them. Uh, I think we got a freeze probably coming in before the end of winter that's going to take them out unless you go to heroic measures to save them. Uh, but that that's a significant amount. Now on the on the green beans, those are fungal leaf spots, and green beans just aren't going to last. And really, on both of these, I don't think I would I would waste my time uh, trying to deal with diseases and save them. I I just think that they're not long for this world and it's probably not worth uh, doing that, Shannon. Um, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but um, just just that's kind of what I think. Uh, so uh, Carol had, had emailed about a Cuban Duranta plant uh, and they look to be very dead. Uh, Durantas are moderately hardy. They can't take a freeze in the upper 20s, for example, but they they often will re-sprout from near the base. So what I would do is you got a couple of options. You could mulch the base well just to protect it when we get our next freeze, if there's anything left down there now, uh, and then wait and watch. Or you could just cut the thing back to, you know, six inches high or something, uh, mulch it well, and then let it come back out in the spring. And it'll come back out uh, fresh and, and new. Uh, and should do just fine. They shouldn't have been killed outright. Then in most cases, that that will will be the case. Let's see. Our phone number eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine, or by email. Uh, you can reach us at garden success at tamu dot edu. Garden success, one word at tamu.edu. Let's, uh, let's go to the calendar here and look at some things that are going on uh, here in the, in the uh, Bra Brazos County or Bryan College Station area. Um, the TAMU Gardening Interest Group uh, is going to have a meeting on Tuesday, January 18th. That's next Tuesday at 11.30 in the morning. That's when you arrive for coffee, fellowship, and so on. Uh, and then at noon, the program begins. Uh, Peace Church, Peace Lutheran Church is where um, um, 2854, 20, am I saying that right? I, I get, my, I get my, my four FM number roads mixed up. I go, what do they call the James Earl Rudder Freeway or something like that? 2154 is Welburn, I believe, if that's what you're thinking. No, it's 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 the one it's it's the one that goes around the west side of town by um, Easterwood. Oh, at uh, 2818 Harvey. 2818. I used to work in Conroe, and it was 28 
54 FM over there, and now I can't get the 21 and the 28 and the 15 and everything. But anyway, it's at the corner of Rio Grande and, and, and that road. Um, the, the presentation is going to be by Don Maples from the Brazos Valley Orchid Society on Orchids for Everyone. And if you have orchids, you definitely need to go because uh, you're going to hear a lot about uh, what he's learned over 40 years of experience with orchids. Uh, and you'll be able to ask questions, I'm sure, as well. Uh, if you don't have orchids, you also need to go. Uh, you can't walk into a supermarket without there being a pile of orchids at the front door uh, most of the year. And uh, you need to try one of those. Those typically, the ones they have there, are very, uh, they're among the easiest orchids to grow, a moth orchid. Uh, and uh, But there are many other kinds, and I think you may find it uh, a little bit addictive when you get going with orchids uh, because there are so many types with fascinating flowers. Uh, I heard one time at orchids, there are, more, um, there are more types of orchids than just about any other plant type that there is out there. I mean, there's an incredible wide variety. We can probably, in our mind's eye, picture about four or five different kinds of orchids at the very most, uh, but they go way, way, way beyond that. We even have terrestrial orchids uh, and orchids that uh, uh, are that you can find uh, and, and grow in a in a container. That I mean, uh, like in soil, not in bark, uh, hanging on the side of a tree like they normally grow in the wild, or most of them. So anyway, I think you'll enjoy that. Orchids for Everyone. It's a free program, and again, it's uh, arrive at 11:30, get you some coffee, sit down, visit with some folks, and at noon. Uh, by noon, they're going to start the program, and that's the Temu Women's Club Gardening Interest Group on Tuesday the 18th of January. I always uh, like to also remind you that we have some great farmer's markets around our area. Uh, the South Brazos County Farmer's Market uh, is on Tuesday from noon to 5 out where the Scott and White Clinic is on East University, the corner of East University in Glen Haven. That's the last little street to the right as you're going out toward the bypass. Uh, and uh, it's across from Scott and White Clinic, just on the other side of Glen Haven from that. Uh, they have a lot of things, uh, you know, f uh, produce and eggs and herbs, jams, jellies, Texas olive oil, honey, and all kinds of things there. Uh, the Brazos Valley, uh, South Brazos County Farmer's Market also is out there every Friday from noon to 5, and that's the same place the corner of University in Glen Haven, turn right on Glen Haven, and it's hardly a, any distance at all on the right uh, as you turn in. Uh, the Brass Valley Farmer's Market is on uh, Saturdays from 8 a.m. to noon, and it's down, uh, we say down on, uh, it's North Main, and it's up, we should say up Main Street. Uh, downtown Bryan, as you, as you go from downtown Bryan north on Main, it'll be right there, and uh, the uh, Market has all kinds of things, like we've mentioned before. They often have meat vendors, uh, baked goods, uh, just a lot of, even crafts, and sometimes they have live music, and usually there's a food truck around. Uh, so we've got a lot of farmer's markets, a lot of opportunities to support growers, uh, and uh, it's just fun. It's fun to get out and uh, be able to visit with people and, and shop. Uh, it's a family-friendly uh, event. Uh, I, people even come with their pets and strolling around. Uh, through there. Uh, as far as uh, some of our other activities going on around town, on Friday tomorrow, January 14th, the A&M Garden Club will be meeting at 1030, also at Peace Lutheran Church, the same place we just talked about for the Garden Interest Group. 
10.30 a.m., Sarah McReynolds, as a former president of Texas Garden Clubs, is going to talk about designing with recycled materials. And so that is also a free event, 10.30 a.m. on Friday. Uh, that you think you might be uh, interested in visiting some of these. Garden clubs are a great way to not only find camaraderie, but uh, to learn and to uh, enjoy. Uh, if, you, if you love uh, native plants, especially, and plants that are uh, some often kind of southwestern in their, in their origins, but not strictly, uh, the John Ferry Garden is down in Hempstead. Uh, it is uh, 2559 FM 359 in Hempstead. Uh, you can go to the web to jfgarden.org. JF as in John Ferry. jfgarden.org. And they have three Saturdays in January. One has already passed where they're open up. You, you, it's $10 for non-members, free for members. And the tours leave on the hour at 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. And it's a guided tour. Uh, and I think if you've never been, you need to you need to see the place. It's pretty cool. Uh, but John Ferry Garden is another thing going on uh, in the general area. Hempstead's a little ways out, but it's fun to get out there. All right, let's go to the phones, the number 845-5689, and let's talk to Shannon. Hello, Shannon. Hi there, Skip. Um, I had those questions about the peppers and the ficus. I appreciate your answers I heard online. Okay. Um, but this is probably a really dumb question. It's so basic that uh, everybody knows but me. What do you do about bacteria in the soil? Because I've had this happen to other plants in the garden. Eventually, they get these spots. All right. Well, Shannon, I just first have to say for everybody listening, there are no dumb questions. <laughs> there are dumb answers. So I'm the one on the hot spot, and I'll try not to say a dumb answer. How about that? Okay, uh, the, the world we live in is so microbially rich. Uh, it, they're everywhere. And people think about, you know, I wash my hands. I don't want to get a bacteria on them. Well, yes, that's a good idea if your hand's going to go to your eye or your mouth. But we're teeming with bacteria, the surface of your skin, the surface of every plant leaf. Uh, and there's just all kinds of bacteria, um, uh, protozoa and uh, fungi and, and actinomycetes and all kinds of microbes. Most of them are not out there to make our plants sick. And under normal conditions, the plant, along with the good guys in the soil, fend off those bad. So you have bacteria in your soil, a bazillion types, and, and you're not going to ever get rid of them. You wouldn't want to. I mean, that would almost be like trying to sterilize the, the outdoors. Uh, but just know that even if they are disease types, uh, with proper care, healthy soil, it's not waterlogged and anaerobic, uh, and you're adding organic matter and things, uh, it just turns out okay. It, I mean, nature takes care of things. You know, you don't see the jungles of the Amazon and the grasslands of the Serengeti uh, that are just not able to survive because some bacteria showed up. Okay. That was a lot of answer for a little question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I add compost. I water, you know, regularly, not too much. And uh, okay. so I, I guess with time, it just um, they I, because I'm in Houston, they do kind of overwinter. Yes. A lot of my plants do, and yes. so 
I guess with age, it just eventually happens. I would consider cutting them back significantly if they're going to overwinter <laughs> like that at the very least. Uh, so I was answering kind of like from the standpoint of the soil, but uh -huh. from the standpoint of plants, peppers can also bring in problems uh, with the plant. In fact, there are certain problems with uh, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, all those brassica plants that comes in with the seed. Uh, and so mm -hmm. by the time, if you buy seeds and they're, they have the problem, you're going to have plants that have the problem. And uh, they, they're very persistent in the soil for those kind of things. But mm -hmm. in general, I would just say, probably since you know this is a problem in your garden, uh, you want to have some sort of a spray on hand. There are different kinds of things for bacterial spots, uh, but the, the uh, copper-based sprays, just the element copper, uh, is put into sprays, and it is pretty good in fending off bacteria. It's not okay. going to make the spots that are there go away, but if you catch yeah. it early and you coat those leaves with a copper spray, a bacteria that lands is not going to, or splashes over there, is not going to be able to, to uh, do what it what they want to do. Uh, so that would be one more consideration. And I could be wrong that huh. those also may be fungal. Some of those may be fungal mm -hmm. as well. So, uh, but the same is true, uh, just those protective kinds of sprays. Okay. I know it's going to get cold again, but I'm looking at, I'm working in my yard and there are just birds everywhere, butterflies all over the place. I have flowers flowering. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's like a summer day. It's I ridiculous. Know. You got 365 <laughs> growing days in Houston. Maybe 364. I think there's one day of winter, right? <laughs> well, that wasn't true last year, but yeah. I, it's, <laughs> I, yeah, it's yeah. hard to cut things back right now, but I know I should. It is. And I, you know, in your situation, even being further south from us and a little balmy, uh, I would probably wait to cut back on things that are going to come back out like that. Uh, huh. And the reason is pruning is an invigorating process. If you go out to a, a pepper plant or a duranta or a yellow bells or firebush or anything you got growing, when you cut all, back, all uh -huh. okay, well, when you cut back, they want to regrow just like a tree would. You prune a limb back and you get a bunch of sprouts where, where uh -huh. you cut it off. And when we have mild temperatures, they're going to try to start doing that. And you still can have that one winter day you're going to have this year uh, all the way up into, uh, let's see, I don't know exactly where you are in Houston, but some of those areas there, it's about uh, probably uh, mid to late February where you get your final sure. freeze. Uh, so uh, I would kind of wait a little bit just not to encourage them to try to start regrowing. Uh, in areas where they go dormant and it stays cold enough to prevent that, you can prune any time you want. Okay. Okay. Well, then I'll wait a little bit. I, I have tomatoes that are going to probably be ready in a couple of weeks. <laughs> you, you, shame on you. There are people listening <laughs> who are, their mouths are watering and they're looking out at the fried uh, remains of the last freeze. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, good. It's, it's okay to brag on this show, so that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to go pull up those peppers, though. Thanks. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Our phone number, 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, garden success one word, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. This is a time of year when we want to plant fruit trees. Uh, once we get past the first of the year, 
we have fruit trees arrive in various types. Well, a couple of types. There's there's bare root, which occasionally you can find, uh, sometimes locally, but uh, primarily what we see now are container-grown fruit trees. And uh, sometimes there are ones that are dug bare root and put with some material around them, and we call those containerized. Uh, so they're not they're not container-grown, but they're potted up in a container. Uh, so. Things like uh, apples, peaches, plums, pears, figs, uh, and then not trees, but fruit, blackberries, blueberries, and other things uh, are all for sale this time of the year. And it's a good time to plant them. And the sooner you do it, the better. And here's why. Because when you get them in the ground, they're going to start uh, establishing some new roots. And when you take a tree, a fruit tree or a shade tree, when you take a woody plant out of a container, the roots will be circling the container if it grew in that container. And they don't unwind underground. And they don't establish as well when they are um, sitting in that condition. You pull out a cylinder out of the pot, right? It's a round cylinder of roots. And I have seen situations where people just pulled it out of the pot and set it in the ground. And you come back months later and that's basically where the root system is. Maybe a few roots venturing out at near the top of the soil. Uh, so what you want to do is cut them. And I know that's hard to do. Bite the bullet and cut them. Whether you or someone else in your household can be ruthless, uh, give them the, the pruning uh, snips or the, the knife. Or I use a box cutter knife unless the roots are really large. Cut down vertically in three places around the, the root ball. and sever any root going in a circle. It will quickly re-sprout and within a couple of weeks you're going to have new roots that are venturing out into the soil uh, and it just leaves you with a better tree long term. Uh, so go ahead and get your fruit trees, get them planted, let them get established, uh, plant them at the same level they grew, uh, make a note of whether or not they need pollinators to so that you have two different varieties so they can pollinate each other. If you go online to the Aggie Horticulture website, it's aggie-horticulture.tamu.edu. And there's a button right on the front page for fruit information. You click on it and you can get a free full-color publication of any kind of fruit you want to grow. There's one on blueberries and blackberries and apples and plums and pears and figs and peaches and on and on. Uh, even even fruit you don't want to grow here. There's lots of good publications there, and they will walk you through the process of what varieties might be best for you uh, and uh, whether it needs a pollinator or not. To just make things simple, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Figs and peaches do not need pollinators. Most pears do not need a pollinator. And plums, there's some that do, and then there's some that don't. But generally, you're going to need a pollinator for a plum, and apples, you're going to need a pollinator. Blackberries, no. Blueberries can set fruit in many cases without a pollinator, but produce bigger fruit if you have a pollinator. And the reason is a blueberry has a whole bunch of little tiny seeds, and seeds are what make the fruit develop. They, the seed, there's a a substance being produced that causes the development of that fruit. You may have seen a lopsided apple that you saw in the store somewhere, or maybe on your tree or someone's tree. And when you cut it open, you find that the, the seed on that lopsided part, the part that didn't grow, uh, has developed. 
or has not developed, and so that is uh, what's going on. Uh, let's see. I am uh, looking around. I do not have a charger or anything near. I understand we're getting a little bit of a buzz here, but I'm not sure where that is coming from. Maybe I'm making that noise. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so with blueberries, if you have a pollinator, it's a little bit better. Now, as far as easy to grow, um, Let's see, persimmons would probably be the easiest fruit to grow, and peaches. Peaches, you get the cold damage occasionally, uh, and so that would be their drawback, but main drawback. But uh, peaches and, I'm sorry, figs. I said the wrong word. Let me start all over for the confusion I just created. Uh, persimmons and figs are very easy to grow. Like if you want to grow something organically, persimmons and figs, that's your best bet. Uh, blackberries also are very easy to grow. Uh, but they they prefer a, a looser, loamier, uh, a little bit on the acidic side soil, which we don't have a lot of around here. A lot of the areas are a heavy, higher pH clay. Uh, but uh, if you can get it get them into a little bit looser soil, uh, and maybe by building up the soil a little bit with some materials, uh, that's a little bit better for them. Uh, blueberries are a challenge here. Our water quality is terrible for blueberries. Uh, the sodium and the bicarbonates um, are just too high. And so if you want to do blueberries, you're going to have to have RO water from inside your house, one of those machines, or you're going to have to purchase water, or more likely you want to capture your rainwater to, to irrigate them with. If you put them in a container, a large container, or a large raised bed where you have added a sand and peat moss mix, and you water them that way, you can grow blueberries here. We generally don't recommend them because that's a lot of ifs, just like azaleas could be grown here if you did all those things for them. Uh, but we, we, you can grow if you, if you do that. Uh, apples are a challenge. They're going to require more sprays than just about anything that you would grow with the exception of grapes uh, in order to have good success. Uh, some people just want the easy stuff. I left, uh, skipped over plums and figs. Plums are, are a lot, like everything we said about peaches in terms of, of and not too hard, not too difficult to grow, uh, but they do have some diseases that you're going to have to spray for, especially in rainy years. And then pears are, are tough. Now we got, we got two kinds of pears. Uh, the pears you buy in the supermarket, you shouldn't grow here. Dianju, Bosque. Bartlett, those varieties. They are very smooth and creamy textured, and I know why people like them. They're good, but they're prone to fire blight, and they're, they sometimes have chilling requirements that we can't achieve here. Uh, but the old country pears that people canned, the kefir, uh, there's one called Orient. It's not an oriental pear, but the name of it is Orient. Uh, those old pears, and there's others, you can go to the Aggie Horticulture publication I mentioned to see other names, those are pretty tough. They're going to get some fire blight, but they generally survive it. And you see old homesteads driving through the country where the house, you know, 50 years ago disappeared, you know, burned up, fell down, rotted away. And all that's left is a pear tree and some of those good uh, naturalizing bulbs that just come back year after year. Uh, pears are, are survivors, especially those kinds. So anyway, the, now's, now's the time to start planting. You can plant them on a little bit later, but just remember that uh, you, you, the earlier you plant them, the more success you're going to have uh, when it comes to them getting good roots and surviving the first summer. Let's go to the phones and talk to Caitlin. 
Hello, Caitlin. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, I am a teacher at AM Consolidated Middle School, and I have this little pothos plant that I brought home over the Thanksgiving break. Okay. Um, and it apparently it had mold in the soil, and it spread to all of my plants in my house, and now I have no idea how to get rid of the mold, and everybody I've talked to hasn't been able to give me a solid answer. Do you have any advice? I do not know anything that fits that description. Um, so I'm going to assume you're not pulling my leg here because I have had no. people call me uh, just to give to try to stump me online, the people that I know. <laughs> so I'm going to eliminate that one. Uh, Caitlin, if you have mold and you look at it and it looks like mold, you know, a fuzzy fungus, that is probably not a plant disease on pothos. It probably is something that's growing either on a sugary substance on the on the stem or fo some of the foliage or on the soil. It would be great if you take your cell phone, snap a picture, and since we're about done with the show today, send it to me at the Extension Office, at the AgriLife Extension Office in Brazos County. And let me take a look at it and see. Get as close as you can. Make sure it's in good, sharp focus. And I'll see that the only... The only thing I would say just kind of as a sweeping statement is you probably need to back off the water considerably. I let mine go where they're pretty dry on top and there's a little moisture down deeper in the pot. Uh, you don't want them to go so far that they wilt and then you get the yellow leaves falling off. But uh, don't keep that top continually wet. And that, okay. that'll probably help. But when I see the picture, I may change my, my answer a little bit. Great. Okay. I can do that. So well, send a picture to the AgriLife Extension Office. Yeah, it's, uh, it, uh, I'm out of time to give you the whole URL, but uh, if you just uh, go online, or you could, if you want to bring a plan out uh, for us to look at, we can do that. Just make sure I'm there. Okay, awesome. Thank All you right. so much. You bet. You take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, you too. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. Uh, we're here every Thursday. And if you're listening, I invite you to tell people you know about the show. Uh, believe it or not, there are a lot of gardeners who don't even know there's a local radio show. So we invite you to uh, share the news and get, get other folks involved. And we look forward again to talking to you next week. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.